0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: For many Americans of a certain age, Caroline Kennedy is frozen in time, a five-year-old clutching her mother's hand at her father's state funeral. But today, Caroline Kennedy is the U.S. ambassador to Japan. Before that, she was active in school reform in New York City. Uh, the author of numerous books, a woman of extraordinary experience with an inspiring story. I sat down with her the other day uh, to talk about it all. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, I want to greet you with your appropriate salutation. (laughs) I know you demand that wherever um, you go. It's
2: your excellency um, and penitentiary.
1: Oh, it is? Yes, it is. Who can say
2: that? <laughs> well, not Do you me, get that obviously. on your business card? Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> um, good to see you. Thank you for, for being here. You once told me that there are people of a certain generation who still think of you as a little girl in plaid skirt and patent leather shoes, Um, and of course that's true. I I mean, you're emblazoned in people's consciousness that way. What do you remember about those times and growing up in a really unusual environment in the White House as a little girl?
2: Well, I, I of course, you know, was really young. I was about three when um, my father um, became president and about six um, when we left, and um, so so uh, my memories are wh- of what was important to me. And so um, I had hamsters and um, they escaped. And I, when I've been back to the White House since, I remember like really vividly when I get out of the elevator, um, exactly where they all were. And I remember going over and getting candy in the office and, um, you know, visiting my father. Um, And that was always a big treat. You had like a
1: menagerie over there, didn't you? Yeah, we
2: had everything. But he was allergic and my brother was allergic, so we couldn't have... um, So a lot of them weren't, you know, I didn't get to sleep with all my animals. But (laughs) um, they were around. Uh, We had the puppy of the um, Russian dog that went into space that my mother had um, sat next to Khrushchev once and was asking all about this dog, and then he sent her a puppy. And um, my father went crazy. It's like, you know, what do you think you're doing? You can't have a, you know, Khrushchev is just using you. And um, the problem, and the dog uh, used to... Is that
1: to you or your mom?
2: To my mother when this dog arrived. Because that'd if, be a what tough is this message dog? for Where like a four-year-old. Where did this come old. from? Exactly. Except for it bit everyone, and <laughs> so then it disappeared. But, I see. Um, <laughs> So I remember a lot of things like that. I don't remember high-level diplomacy, but I do remember crawling under the desk, and I discovered that, and um, that was my special hiding place.
1: They, uh, that desk is still there. That's the desk that President Obama uses.
2: I know, and he actually, when I first visited him in the office, he, wanted, you know, he got down there to look at the special hiding place. <laughs> so, so it was really a great moment for
1: me. Um, how, you know, I, I lost my dad suddenly when I was 19 years old. You lost your dad when you were just shy of six. Um, how vivid are you? I fight all the time to hold on to my memories, which are you know fading over time. How how vivid are your memories of of your dad? Uh,
2: well, I do remember like a lot of the, some of the special the stories that he told me, the bedtime stories and things like that. Um, but I think for me, really, it was um, he lived on so powerfully in other people and so it all sort of blurred in a way um, during my childhood and growing up and I did have uh, so many um, extended family members who really kind of carried on that and uh, so he was sort of very much a presence um, and people really spoke all the time to me about him Uh, so I think it's always been hard to remember some of the distinct things. But I I do have visual images of, you know, him getting dressed in the morning or things that I know that I was the only one uh, to see or the bedtime stories as I said. And so those I know are mine. Um, And then a lot of other things are sort of uh, composite pictures of of our entire life.
1: And um, your mom was so young. When she came to the White House and when she left the White House, um, you know, and she's really an iconic figure in in, in people's memories. You said in an interview uh, around the release of her tapes the, a few years ago that people think they know her, but they really didn't know her. Uh, talk about talk about her.
2: Uh, well, I think one of the things that always struck me and when I listened to those tapes that came back so powerfully was, um, her, you know, her image is so familiar uh, to people. And like you say, she's an iconic uh, figure, both as First Lady and then as sort of Jackie O and, um, and the beginning of really what was the celebrity age. Um, but I think um, she was someone who, Uh, Read constantly, who was intellectually incredibly curious, and I think a real partner for my father in that way, um, who had a deep uh, knowledge and love of history, and I think uh, growing up, that was something that she really shared. She obviously, uh, I mean, I think if you're a parent and you really enjoy something, you do it with your children, you know, they usually enjoy it too. And so for her, that was, you know, reading, that was going to museums, that was being outdoors, but... Um, so I think that she was a much more, and I think that that her intellectual gifts as well as her very strong sense of self gave her the strength to um, navigate, you know, the life that she, that she had, which she, um, I think her time in the White House was something that she um, was incredibly proud of. And, um, but I think it's to her great, I, I mean, I really admire the way that she built a new life for herself around us and then later. Um, working, um, she really had a serious career as an editor for mm-hmm. tw- almost twenty years. A book editor.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, in when you're, we should we should say that the the, the tapes were tapes that she did with Arthur Schlesinger uh, uh, in I guess 1964. Right. Um, she
2: taped um, a series of six or seven interviews, um, Arthur Schlesinger and. Um, and the people around my father had had came up with this. I think it was it was a new, fairly new idea then, quite common now, of really capturing uh, people's impressions while they were fresh, as as really being an important part of the historical record. So she agreed to tape uh, her recollections of life in the White House um, shortly after she moved out after my father's death. And um, as long as they were sealed uh, for 50 years, or for her. Lifetime, And so um, on the 50th anniversary of his death, we decided to, to release them because there were still enough people alive who really were lived those times, and so they would really find them interesting. So the interviews, I think, really kind of add a, a depth um, to her image because she never did any other interviews, which is right. kind of hard to imagine in this day and age that the First Lady... I mean, she did some as First Lady, but they were very... Um, You know, kind of professional, I would say.
1: Yeah, well, about the White House decor and things like that. That was what was so stunning about the tapes because she had very uh, deep uh, uh, observations and sometimes sharp observations about all the historical figures of the time. She called uh, De Gaulle, President De Gaulle of France, a a you know a narcissist, and uh, you know she had she had very strong opinions, and those were not expressed when she was uh, in the White House, but she clearly held them. This was right at right. Uh, at right. that time.
2: Yeah, you couldn't really fool her. Yeah. <laughs> she had a great sense of humor, and I think she was very observant about people, and I think that's obviously one of the things that gets you through uh, tough times. And she was, I think, you know, obviously, uh, I think, an incredibly... Protective and devoted mother and I think she really had a strong sense of what was important um, in raising children and protecting us and so um, I admire that
1: how much of a I mean uh, you may not uh, Accept the premise, but it seems to me that there's there are great great things flow from being part of this iconic family, but it's also uh, there are burdens that flow from it as well burdens of expectations but do you did, uh, how much did you live with that you said your mother impressed on you the, um, the responsibilities of, of who you were but that's a lot for a, a young person to carry around with you. Well,
2: I don't I think I was really lucky because I think the adults in my family really taught by example and they were always a lot of fun. So it wasn't as if she sat us down and gave us lectures. It was just the way she behaved, you know, the way she uh, lived her own life. I think she was very determined to um, or not determined, but she just was the kind of person that had strong interests, strong values um, and you know, realized the need to build a life for herself and her children and so Um, And also
1: a great sense of humor. And a great sense of humor. Which is obvious in those tapes. And
2: some very, you know, very close friends. And and I think really was understood and felt very... it, you know it was, was embedded in our extended family so I think I got the best of, of all of that I got of, I was part of my, uh, my family was just me my mother and my brother um, but we had this incredible extended family that was uh, just a source of fun and loyalty and I think protected all of us from some of the outside pressures even though there were a lot of pressures and, and uh, within the family of, of all these kids trying to grow up at once.
1: Um at some point early in your uh, adult life you had a flirtation with journalism.
2: It's such a flirtatious <laughs> undertaking.
1: <laughs> why did you why your mom had started as a news photographer. Right. I guess that's how maybe she met your dad?
2: Yeah. Yeah, she um well uh, um I don't think it's how they met but she, he did appear in her column in the inquiring photographer column.
1: Uh-huh. Um
2: but I think if you grow up around you know the issues and people who are talking about politics and and what's going on in the world, certainly it's there's a you know as as you embody a, a really close uh, connection between politics and journalism. And I think um, I never saw politics really as something for me, but um, but I think I was always interested in the issues. So, um, but then I I thought that actually it was. It wasn't really. It would be. It was hard for me. So I. I thought. I mean, I like to write, and I thought the books was a better
1: way to go. Hard for you because of. You, there was a. There was an anecdote somewhere about. You. You were an intern at the New York Daily News or something, and. Uh, or was it the Times? I oh, was
2: at the Daily. No, I was at the Daily News. And you Daily. went
1: out to get coffee or something for. Some editors or reporter, and you. Came by the time you came back, there was some. Someone had moved a photo on the on the wire of you at the Bagel Nosh picking up. Uh, oh,
2: I see. I don't even remember that. Yeah. But I did. I it was it was a great summer um, to be an intern at the Daily News, um, a copy boy, excuse me, yeah. at the Daily News. Well, <laughs> um, so there was a lot going on in New York City politics. It was a blackout. Uh, the son of Sam was happening. So I yeah. got to do a lot of real uh, city stuff, and I and that was great, and I loved it.
1: When you were out there, though, did did, did would it get in your way that? Well, I was a
2: coffee boy, so out there wasn't really part of my job. Out there was a Coffee out, at the Bagel out notch, there, was, huh? Yeah, a Coffee at the Bagel So most notch of it happened going in the newsroom. To, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is a cool place to be.
2: Yeah, it was great. Jimmy Breslin, Pete Hamill both had columns. It was like a real Two New York City. Two immortal yeah. New York columnists. Yeah, so that was great.
1: Yeah, Jimmy Breslin, I mean, his, his co- uh, coverage of the Son of Sam murders was legendary.
2: Yeah, it was. So I got to go out a couple of times on. Uh, things then, but um, it was yeah. I learned a, t- a ton, and um, it was a great experience. Uh,
1: but you, but but what made you decide that you uh, wouldn't be? did want to work your, in daily yeah.
2: news. Uh, I think I, I was a sophomore in college, so it was I don't know. I just you know one thing led to another. Something else came along, but I think I, you know, the books that I worked on after really were pr- primarily journalistic. Uh, so so I could see not. Not every day, maybe, but I, I mean, writing and thinking are obviously something that I do a lot. So, um, so you found so a it, way to so a channel for, Yeah. Uh,
1: I'm, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Caroline Kennedy. Back with, with Caroline Kennedy. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, just looking back, you, you've studied and read a lot of materials including you, you, you were involved in the project of releasing your father's tapes as well um, uh, in which some of the major issues of the time were discussed uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in particular there was a riveting exhibit at the Kennedy Library uh, of those tapes and the really fraught discussions around what to do in Cuba, having served in the White House, I found those really, really uh, interesting. What did you learn about? What did you learn about your dad in all the sort of reporting that you've done over the years in sort of curating his materials? Uh, what did you learn about him as a president?
2: Well, I think I the, my goal really was, I think, to. Um, to make history accessible and to show people that um, if you know they, that it's not clear when you're in the middle of it, and um, that that's what makes it so much more interesting than when you're just learning how it all happened, you know, with the value of hindsight. And I think that both the tapes, my mother and my father, um, both of them had a real interest in in history and in the people who made it. Uh, and I think the idea that they were People who were making history was something that um, that they really, you know, both of them were incredibly patriotic, and that was really a thrilling, I think, accomplishment. But part
1: so, part of what history is, though, is it brings people to life, right? Uh, as as people, as people, as people. So what 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 did you take away that you didn't know as a five year old uh, about your about your father?
2: Um, well, I, I, it's hard. I. None of that was new to me when I was doing it, so I can't really it's not the same as if I you know read about uh, President Obama making a decision. and so um but I think the sense that you're in there and you're uh, and these people are just making decisions, and that you as a as a younger person or a a reader could could be one of those people, I think, is is the point. Nobody knows how it's going to turn out. So obviously with the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, you know, as many, many books and all have have said, um, you know, he, he really guided that, um, and I think he was motivated by a real skepticism of the military. By Which he
1: earned earlier uh, in the Bay in of the Pigs. In the Bay
2: of Pigs, and I think having served in the war um, in the Pacific. And so I think... Uh, you know, just his leadership is something, that obviously, that I'm, you know, as his child, incredibly proud of. Uh, and I think some of those qualities, obviously, are things that I've grown up valuing. And so when um, when President Obama came uh, along, it was it was something that that we all thought was um, here was somebody who could be that kind of leader, who could, who had the... You know the analytic ability, the intellectual depth, the um, the humanity, uh, the steadiness, the temperament, the judgment to, to approach whatever came his way. You know, with the same kind of. Uh, it's interesting. You, you
1: that's what you wrote when you endor- You wrote this really moving piece in the New York Times in, uh, in 2008 when you uh, endorsed uh, Obama for president, and those of us who were working for him. Especially people of a certain age, you know, who I I was inspired by your dad when you said, I finally found the candidate who could be for me what my father was for so many. Um, That was, you know, incredibly moving. Has he fulfilled, now, um, this is probably not a fair question because you're an ambassador. Appointed by Barack Obama, <laughs> uh, but um, and
2: you're an objective. I am. Source. Yes. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. So now that we've
1: done our disclaimers, <laughs> yeah. um, has he has he lived up to those expectations? And more importantly, uh, for this discussion, do you see qualities in him as a president that you that you saw in your dad in reflecting uh, on his time in the White House? Uh,
2: well, it's funny because when um, when we were involved in that. Um, process of endorsement, um, and I was—it was such an interesting, multi-generational conversation because my uncle Teddy was part of it, and my kids were part of it. And I think um, that is really what President Obama, you know, was able to do, and I think my father was able to do, uh, generations earlier, was to bring people, um, into the process that would stay in the process of then families. A new generation really of leadership share. was um, his And mantra. so I thought the, that the headline was really cheesy. A, a president like my father, I thought it cheapened really both of them, but uh, underneath it all, um, my kids and I were talking, you know, just this summer about, um, you know we really did um, believe in him, we really put you know wanted to put ourselves out there and help as much as we could to the extent that that would influence other people um, and you know what a spectacular job he 's done, and how you know proud we are um, of you know of, forget about him, how proud we are of ourselves for. <laughs> um, for <laughs> for reckon, you know for, yeah being part of something so incredible and really historic you
1: know when I listened to those tapes of the Cuban missile crisis, uh, crisis discussions and I heard your dad uh, and his uh, conversations with like Curtis LeMay right. who was the Air Force chief of staff and was very militant and wanted to
2: to nuke everyone
1: right uh, and the, the, the calm, with which uh, your father had these discussions and the sort of rational rationality he imposed on those discussions reminded me of some of the discussions, not to impugn any about there, there was no Curtis LeMay in the room, right. but there were military people in the room when some very fraught decisions were being made, and uh, President Obama asked some very um, very precise questions, very rational questions about outcomes and what the next three moves would right. be if 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 we took certain actions. And so, when I listened to those tapes, I thought, my goodness, they they were kind of the same personality type, you know. Um, so that's why I was asking: did did that has that struck you in your interactions with this president?
2: Um, well, you would know better, because I, I haven't been in sort of those moments. You're an ambassador for um, But yes, I think so. And obviously I wasn't. Um, but I think that uh, certainly around the world, and I, I can speak to that uh, really just currently, um, President Obama has elevated the stature of the U.S. and is really an international president. And I think that was one of the great... Contributions that my father made too was kind of a coming of age of the u s in television and all those things together uh, in a historical moment and and um, and I think that President Obama has done the same thing again for restoring you know our position credibility the idea that millions of people around the world still do look to the United States as the indispensable nation and so um, that comes, I think, when you people are tested by the presidency. You really do get a sense of who they are, even if you're not in the room while they're making this sort of most critical decisions. And I think his, his, uh, you know, commitment and internationalism has is certainly, and his judgment is something that's come through a multiple tough decisions that he's made.
1: You know, Newt Minow, who you know well, was mm-hmm. in your father's administration as. Uh, probably the most famous chairman of the FCC ever did the vast... That's not saying uh, a lot,
2: but... (laughs) Yes, okay, all
1: right. But come on, I'm trying to... But But he's great. He he is great, a brilliant guy, and a wonderful raconteur, and a very devoted um, alumnus of of your father's administration. He was a big supporter and mentor of Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. has been, and... uh, had drew the same conclusion I did, which is that if you were to pick a president who Obama most reflects, it would probably be, it would probably be your father. Um, let me return to your life for a second, your favorite subject. <laughs> um, you went to law school. Um, you took a break and you went to law school. Uh, what, why did you go to law school and what, what did you, uh, where did that lead you?
2: Uh, I went to law school because I really everyone I knew went to law school, and um, and I really I was working uh, in a museum, and I think that surprisingly both of those things complement each other, and and I think help has helped me understand sort of what's important um, both the human side of it as well as the kind of legal and intellectual side. <clears throat>
1: Well, explain that so, to me. How does, how, does, um, how does you know? I
2: think too often in, in government or politics, people only look at the regulatory or the legal side. and And I remember Secretary Kerry saying to us that, you know, to my son, and uh, you really ought to study religion. You really ought to study myth. You ought to study art. You ought to study humanities if you really want to understand the world and what makes the conflicts happen and what makes people, you know, what people care about. And I think that. Uh, so I think that my early time working in a museum uh, really actually gave me a much better understanding of, of cultures, of peoples, and, and I think the main challenge that we have today is how do we all get along and solve the problems of you know this globalized world or in New York City, a, a multicultural diverse society, and I think uh, you need both um, you need an understanding of people's culture and heritage as well as Sort of the framework in which we're all operating. So it was a good decision for me. I'd never practiced law, but I did write two write books on it? the you Constitution. Yeah. yeah,
1: you wrote a book about the Bill of Rights, um, and about
2: the right to privacy. Yeah, which started out with a case here in Chicago about the police. Is that and, right? Matter of fact, yes.
1: What was the what case was that?
2: Um, well, we, we don't. It was um, it was a Fourth Amendment case where the police were you know strip searching uh, people for minor violations. So. Um, it's something that's been, you know, again, these issues never really go away, yeah. and it's something that um, has come back with, with too, too much frequency and and not well implemented.
1: No, I mean I, I've said often here that I, the first column I ever wrote 43 years ago was about police community relations, police brutality in Chicago, um, and these issues are. The same issues we're dealing with today, except now everybody has cell phones, and so it, there's videotape to accompany uh, these debates. What you, uh, wh- what did you learn w- about the uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, wh- from the experience of writing about it and and real-life cases in which these the the, the, the these words played out?
2: Uh, well, I think there were. a a few things, but I think that was really the point. Um, again, was that these are real life; these things have real life impact. These lofty principles, and um, and I think one of the women uh, said something that I that I always remembered. She was a a longtime community activist in um, Washington D.C. who had been targeted by the FBI uh, and harassed because she and. She was white, her husband was black, but they were uh, very involved in the anti-war movement and civil rights movement and um, and she said that um, it's up to us to create um, the kind of government that's close to your heart's desire because if you don't do it, somebody else will and um, and so it really is sort of a personal obligation that we all have to get engaged and involved. and I think having living overseas now and seeing how hard it is for younger people in other countries to get involved in their political system. I think it's something um, that's really unique and incredible about our country and certainly about when somebody like President Obama comes along it brings in a whole new generation and that's that's what we need to to keep becoming the country that we want to be.
1: I promised not to uh, draw you into discussion of this particular campaign because in your position, you you probably shouldn't be commenting on an American political campaign. But broadly, uh, what concerns do you have about the environment now?
2: Um, you know, I've
1: been pretty far away,
2: so I haven't been um, involved in watching the day to day. But um, but we you, you
1: say that with a certain amount of relief. It sounds well. Like.
2: <laughs> um, I get a lot of reports, and when I come home, uh, it's like unbelievable. But I think they're. You know, if you look at it from far away, I think a lot of people are around the world are looking to this process and um, have some questions about it. But at the same time, um, they can't believe the kind of debate, the kind of um, you know uh, ability that we have to engage in that debate. That would be the I, best way of describing. Yeah,
1: it. I think honestly, uh, we are so guilty of taking that for granted. Um, you know, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father came from Eastern Europe uh, and uh, fled, you know, religious persecution, uh, tyranny, uh, and um, this is, the fact that we can openly debate and choose our own leaders is a gift uh, that we, ought, we should treat uh, uh, as such and not take for granted. I think we take this stuff for granted uh, too often,
2: right? And I, I mean, you can't—you really can't sit sit this one out,
1: or anyone,
2: or anyone. Or, yeah, anyone,
1: or anyone. Or uh, anyone. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back. I want to ask you, uh, Carolina, a couple more questions about yourself and your life, and then I want to talk a little bit about your current post and what's going on in that region uh, of the world. Um, after law school, you made a decision to. You, you have three children, um, and you started having children at that time. Uh, to spend uh, most of your time, most of the '90s, um, raising these kids. That was kind of. It was an unusual decision for people of your generation, especially people who've gone to law school and so on. What what Prompted you to make that decision
2: uh, well, um, at the same time, I wanted to find a way to con- to use the the, the law um, the education that I had and I and a partner and I came up with these with the book ideas and so it gave me a chance to continue working but to really have much more flexibility in order to stay home uh, at the same time my mother died, and then my brother died, and there was really a lot of of work and responsibility that fell to me that I I didn't feel that I could um, you know I felt that that my responsibility was to them particularly my mother who had um, saved and uh, a tremendous amount of things uh, that were still in the archive from the White House era etc and so I felt that it was I really um, it was my responsibility to organize all of that and and um, and that was a really actually almost a full time job so. Uh, So that was really, and and I got to stay around my house with my kids, and I think having uh, lost her and then my brother, I really wanted to do that, and I felt like it was important for, not just for them, but really for me.
1: I'm sure you also hear, as we've heard, because we had some struggles uh, uh, in our own lives, I'm sure you hear the, I don't know how you go on, I don't know how you deal with that. Really, there's no... Option, right. I mean, you well,
2: just. right, and I think you you do. I mean, I certainly drew tremendous strength and inspiration from the older people in my family who had gone on, and um, and I think there are. I think the most important thing is for people to feel that they're not alone, and there always is somebody who you can turn to, or who's had a, an even more difficult time when you feel like you're you're having a hard time, or couldn't get much worse. First of all, it, ca- it can get worse, so there's always something that's, that's Well, you've good. learned that. Um, yeah, right. But I think also for, for people who are trying to, you know, there are so many people balancing things that are just almost unfathomable and doing it with incredible courage. And so I think that did that's... Did you hear
1: from those people when you were going through, when you lost your brother and when you went through some of these hard times? I mean, do people reach out to you who you didn't know to, 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 to share and give you...
2: Well, I think, yeah, and I think because because that was very public, I more heard from people who had you know gone through something similar and um and you know and and just felt it again. I think that's one of the other things you feel like you tend to feel isolated, but what you really feel is a deep connection to other people who are have suffered are suffering, struggling, whatever, and I think that's really the thing that. Then after you come through those hard times, you you feel like, is there any way that I can pass this on or help other people because it, you know it makes such a difference when you're in that tough tough time.
1: You um, uh, you also served some uh, several years in a in a uh, unpaid role in the New York City public school system. Talk about that and what you learned about public education. Uh, in uh talk about what your role was
2: uh, well uh, after nine eleven I think it, um you know everybody thought especially in New York City, well, you know what can I do? There was this tremendous sense of community and of being part of this incredible city and and that was had been you know obviously attacked and um and so I think for me uh, having you know raising three kids who were in middle school at the time and and having you know, had this incredible opportunity for this great education, and realizing how important it had been to, to really every in my family, um, that was really the area where I thought um, that I could make a contribution or had something to add. So, and
1: you helped raise money to to bring arts education into the school.
2: Uh, so it was really um, school reform writ large, and um, Mike Bloomberg had just been elected mayor mm-hmm. and had made it his priority. And I think that obviously, urban, you know inner city edu- education in disadvantaged communities has really um, you know just something that is a national really disgrace and, and I think a long term national security or economic issue yeah. for this country and so really it's about the future and how are we going to give the kind of opportunity and skills that that Kids need, and uh, so there was a, a huge effort both citywide and individual schools. And obviously, arts education is one that the private sector can support. And so we we set about to try to, um, you know, uh, do different you know, raise money for different kinds of innovations as well as individual programs like arts and libraries and uh, sort of volunteer, increasing volunteers in the schools, but also some of the kind of newer models of transfer schools and, um, you know, charter schools, public charter schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was a really, um, you know, it was, I think, um, a great, you know, time of a lot of different, uh, innovative ideas being experimented with, some of which have really made a difference, um, like small schools breaking down some of the larger schools. Um, as so, I've, it's something that I've stayed, you know, involved with, and I look forward to working on. You know, when I come back from Japan. Well, it's
1: but not; it's still a pressing need. I mean, with all the budgetary problems that right. schools are are facing, we're feeling here in. Yeah, and the demands on
2: teachers and. Um, and what we really expect of them, and, and how hard that job is, and how we can support them better, as well as um, you know just after school programs, and, and how do you how do you, and then being in Japan, really seeing you know what this world is that these kids are going to have to you know are entering, and what do they need to be prepared for that? Uh, it's it's coming at it from a different angle.
1: Yeah, when we were in uh, South Korea, when I was working for the president. The uh, South Korean leaders were telling him that they had a huge political problem because the public was outraged that uh, they were short on English teachers for the second graders, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know he, he was struck by that because um, you know the, in a competitive world um, those kids are going to uh, have advantages uh, because the investments are being right. made uh... in uh... In, in in what they in what they need you've now you're almost d- completed uh... your term as ambassador uh... to japan talk a bit a little bit about what's going. got there's a lot of focus The president talked about a reset uh... to that region and that that region was going to be uh... most important in 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 terms of defining the future in our role in that region um, First of all, how are we doing there, uh, and what are the great challenges?
2: Uh, well, it's in, it's coming from um, New York, and uh, really having spent my time focused on you know domestic issues to be in Japan, which is you know really our strongest ally in Asia at a time when everybody is realizing that Asia is going to be. Um, where the 21st century you know, happens uh, has really been an incredible experience. And I think the main thing that struck me is how, um, how little attention in a way that, that we pay and how little understanding most Americans have of the incredible opportunity that there is. And it's, it's really far away, but um, there are uh, so many connections and the U.S. has so much... Both invested in Asia and Japan specifically, um, but there's also such a great desire for our involvement that I think people think of uh, the world sometimes here, and certainly I've, from what I can tell during this campaign, as something that we need to wall ourselves off from. But in fact, uh, it's really the opposite. Everyone uh, there's incredible opportunity. There's so much business over there. Um, there is so much potential uh, and desire for American involvement. But you
1: know what the fear is—that that, that uh, you know our factories and. And good middle class jobs are being being uh, being shipped shipped over
2: there. And that has happened, and that's that's not right, um, to let that happen without supporting the people who are being displaced. But at the same time, these are huge markets for us, Uh, and I think we do ship over there uh, incredible amounts of, um, I mean, whether it's advanced manufacturing, whether it's, um, uh, you know, we have partnerships where, you know, planes are built both here and there. There's a lot of agricultural exports. There's um, so it's it's a it's an incredibly complex, interwoven economy. And so the question is, how do you and where can you um, can you create opportunity both here and there? But there's definitely a lot more um, opportunity for Americans to export there. How
1: and can how can there's a Huge debate here, obviously over the uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the, the giant trade deal that was negotiated. Uh, how much uh, how how much concern is there uh, in Japan and in the region about what is mounting opposition here and what seems like real difficulty in passing Both candidates for president have renounced this. Uh, renounce this agreement?
2: Well, I think the campaign rhetoric has obscured some of the larger issues, which um, which are really part of this, which is that um, while we need to support people who have been dislocated, and that's always been true of of these trade agreements um, and provide training and figure out ways for them to, to succeed, um, there's also a lot of positives here. Um, as I said, there's a lot of opportunity for us to export um, and the um, more intangible but very real um, creation of and perpetuation of stability in Asia is actually going to redound maybe doesn't feel like it in our daily lives but um, but we are raising environmental I mean it has a huge environmental impact we're raising labor standards in the world which will make it more even and um, and I think in a national security way, you know, even people who don't realize it here have benefited from the stability in Asia.
1: Um, the, uh, the, the one country that is not enthused about the Trans-Pacific Partnership is China. Right. Um, so explain okay. that, because well, I don't think that's well understood.
2: Um, countries in the region are looking to both the U.S. and China, and they—they, they, I mean, you saw the president's trip to Vietnam. Two and a half million people showed up uh, to greet him, and there was this overwhelming um, welcome that he received in a country that we were at war with. Same with Japan. Uh, he went to Hiroshima, and um, the entire—Yeah, you were involved Japan, in that.
1: How how um, emotional? Was that the president's uh, visit to Well, Hiroshima? I think for him
2: it was really a very, you know, I think as any American who goes there, you really come away changed. And you really feel the power and um, of that place to, and it makes you actually leave with a sense of like, I, I need to, to work as hard as I can so that this... Nothing like this ever happens again, um, in, a, in a kind of a tangible way that I certainly was never expecting. Um, and I think, I mean, he's obviously committed a lot of his time and effort to those issues. But um, the nation of Japan was is still just so overwhelmingly grateful and emotionally, um, you know, appreciative in the, in a really deep um, and. You know, profound way for that his effort to come there and to recognize what they uh, experienced, and so I think that um, that that we have ties there that that are very very deep and that have helped to create the life that we live here, even though it seems very disconnected. And so that's something that, if you look ahead, TPP, while it sounds just about economics, and um, is that has a very very important um, and much larger impact.
1: When you went over there I mean your 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 father's story was very much wrapped up in his experience in the war um, his PT boat uh, cut in half by a Japanese destroyer and, uh, and all of his heroics were a lot of what the story of 1960 uh, was about. Now you're here as the U.S. representative in Japan how much how much recognition of that whole story was uh, was there when you arrived?
2: Well, last year was the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. And so I think that, that the whole year was a series of commemorative ceremonies about um, the U.S.-Japan alliance and, and how we have transformed into these great uh, partners. And this is an ancient history there. I met the widow of the destroyer captain who who sank my father's PT boat. And um, it was really just an incredible, I mean, World War II for kids today is really, you know, ancient history and just as the 1960s often are. And um, this was really, you know, there she was, this uh, older old lady in the wheelchair. And, um, but my father corresponded with the crew of that destroyer, even in the 1950s. And so I think this tradition of reconciliation that, that we have as Americans um, is something that, um, that we should really be proud of and that it it does inspire the world and that's the only way we are going to solve some of these problems. And so I think the Prime Minister came here and and expressed his remorse for Japan's role. President Obama just went to Hiroshima and sort of um, just standing there was was just a powerful symbol of reconciliation. Well, and
1: and as you say, as a testimony to the need to prevent such... um, Such catastrophes from happening again.
2: But when you have these leaders who are willing to, you know, reach across and do something courageous, Japan and Korea are are working hard to to put some of their history behind them in this comfort women deal um, that was very controversial and took a lot of courage. So I think that that doesn't that we should look at those moments, you know, more than we do and think about how we can. I mean, our future is so intertwined with with the entire world now that how are we going to really manage this so that um, we can preserve peace and uh, opportunity.
1: uh, A good podcaster would end the uh, discussion right there, but But I just have one more question. Since I'm not a good podcaster. Speaking of that region, you mentioned Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam escalated somewhat... Uh, under your father's administration But he discussed Vietnam uh, And there were, you know, there were Assassinations and other Developments there In which uh, we were um, Involved Do you think uh, Had he lived that uh, He would have avoided The pitfall that President Johnson fell in uh, Into in terms of Escalating uh, the war To the degree that he did
2: Uh, Well, I mean, as you know, there's like, you know, hundreds of of books and people study this and it's one of the great, you know, what ifs of history. And um, of course, uh, you know, I would think, and the people closest to him uh, all thought that he would, you know, having served in the war, having fought in the Pacific, um, having traveled to Vietnam as a congressman in the early 1950s, so that's six years after the end of World War II. Um, that he would not have escalated it because he, um, my mother always quoted something that I guess um, General MacArthur had said to him when he came to visit, which was, you know, never get involved in a land war in Asia. And um, I think that he he really understood, um, you know, how difficult it would be. But so who had he knows? gotten past the?
1: I mean, he had an election in 1964 with a very. Sharp-edged opponent potentially coming up, Barry Goldwater. Um, so likely after that, he would have been free to uh, navigate his way through that and and out of there.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I again, you know, I was pretty pretty young at the time, but I can't uh, believe he didn't involve you in those <laughs>
1: discussions.
2: That's <laughs> true, uh, but I think that you know, I I would take you know the the word of you know, my mother, my uncle Bobby, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, I mean, everybody, I mean, and and his record in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was to look for ways to solve um, problems diplomatically, peacefully. Um, So I I like to think, I hope that I'm right. I'm pretty confident that that the skills that he showed in those crises would have um, helped us not to get involved in that tragic Caroline
1: Kennedy, I can't let you go without thanking you for um, for what you've done at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, um, which has just celebrated its 50th anniversary, created by your family to try and encourage young people to get involved in politics and public service. We've s- shamelessly stolen the model at the University of Chicago and hopefully we can uh, encourage other Colleges and universities to do the same, which I think was your family's notion that these things should grow. The more, everywhere. the better.
2: The more, yeah. the better. I think there are twenty-seven uh, now, and um, and you all are doing such an incredible job of, of kind of stealing, starting, um, <laughs> yes, of, of uh, you know Im- improve, optimizing the model, yeah, and optimizing. so optimizing the model. Yes. I've learned that in Japan. Good diplomatic yeah. language. So, um, so we're counting on you to to you know to inspire the whole generation around here, and we're working on it in Boston.
1: Well, thank you for that and your public service and especially your friendship.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.